Hello, my name's John Schaefer and welcome to the CityWire Wealth Manager podcast. Bitcoin has been making the headlines yet again this year, with its price skyrocketing over the past few months. In January, the FCA issued a warning about investing in cryptocurrencies, and there are clearly fundamental concerns over volatility. However, institutional investors have started to take interest in Bitcoin, but is it suitable for a multi-asset portfolio? I spoke with Jason Guthrie, Head of Capital Markets and Digital Assets at WisdomTree. The firm runs a Bitcoin exchange-traded product, and Guthrie explained the advantages of investing via this structure. Well, Jason, I know cryptocurrencies have been a topic of conversation for, for really about a decade. Um, but I think there's still quite a lot of misconceptions about it. And perhaps you could just, in a nutshell, um, tell us what cryptocurrencies are and why wealth managers should be considering them in their portfolios. Um, so cryptocurrencies represent the emergence of, of kind of a new asset class of um, of sort of digitally scarce value being created for the very first time. Um, and I think that kind of makes it sound... Well, it makes it sound quite complicated, and obviously it's, it's, it is quite an impressive kind of technological um, advancement. But I think what we've seen over the past decade is that the popularity of these currencies and that the use cases and potential of um, this concept of digitally transferable valuable creating digital scarcity um, is starting to come into its own. And as this asset class kind of starts to mature, um, there's kind of a number of you know, reasons or rationales that we're starting to see um, investors coming into the space, whether it's, you know, diversification, whether it's, um, you know, looking to invest in it as a, uh, a hedge against inflation, looking at it as a, as a way of uh, participating in the disruption that it represents. So it's, it's starting to become interesting for that, that market segment for a few reasons. Obviously, Bitcoin's price had a massive hike over the past year. Um, what, what drove that? Um, so... It's a few, I think a few things kind of coming together to help help push the price up. I mean, you know, any any asset class or any asset uh, is a function of kind of the supply and demand, right? The price is going up if more people are are buying at a given price than are selling. Um, but I think you know, with the with Bitcoin really being in its infancy, um, and the fact that you know the market hasn't really congregated around fundamental valuations model. That's more true for, for this asset class than most. But I think what we saw kind of in the last six months was a coming together of sort of some structurally constrained supply, uh, as well as kind of some drivers or stokers of demand. So on the supply side, um, in, in 2020, we had an event which is known as the hardening, essentially where the Bitcoin reward uh, for mining activities gets halved. So the amount of Bitcoin received by miners per block mined um, is halved. This happens systematically in, in approximately every four years or so. Um, but that occurred last year. So this sort of meant that um, the amount of Bitcoin received from miners who were, who were sort of structurally natural sellers was, was decreased. And, you know, if you think about a mining business, right, you're consuming um, resources that are valued in fiat, which is hardware and power, and you're generating Bitcoin. And so these guys are, are, are natural sellers of that Bitcoin generated in order to continue to fund their business. Um, if you constrain the amount that these guys are receiving periodically, then those natural sellers are, are constrained. So there's a structural constraint on the supply that we see in the market. Um 
from the demand side, that's something that's been, I think, growing periodically, um, you know, over, over, over the last kind of year. But we had a few, I think, kind of big drivers last year that, that helped push it along. So um, what, one of the big investment theses in, in Bitcoin is this idea that it's got a, a stable supply and so that relative to kind of fiat currencies, um, the value should be increasing given the context of all the money printing, all the quantitative easing that we've been seeing central banks doing over what's been better part of a decade now. But I think that really became acute last year in the context of, of COVID-19 um, and the amount of support that governments had to give to the economies and the amount of money that's been printed to back that support. Um, and so this idea of fiat currency devaluation um, of sort of Bitcoin being a hedge against the inflation that that can cause or the devaluation of the fiat currency that that can cause um, sort of became quite acute. We saw quite a lot of, of institutional um, adoption come come kind of the forefront last year. And I think that acts as a really good social proof for the wider market looking to get involved. Um, we saw a, a few big corporates starting to hold Bitcoin on um, on their balance sheet, and we saw uh, sort of, you know, more mainstream financial players starting to get involved as well. One of the big announcements was PayPal uh, integrating Bitcoin into their payment services, allowing people to pay for things in Bitcoin. What about the criticism of the, the extreme volatility of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? I mean, how does that play into this, a sort of maybe more conservative portfolio? How can that work? You need to sort of think about where you sit in that risk spectrum when you're looking at any investment. You're right to say that Bitcoin is one of the more volatile asset classes out there. However, you know, in the scheme of that spectrum, it isn't all the way at one end. If you put it next to the, the kind of performance that we saw in some single stocks, if you take Tesla last year, Bitcoin actually starts to look a little bit tame. So it's always going to be on a spectrum. Um, I think for your typical institutional investor, what we're observing is that really they're looking to make allocations of somewhere between 1% to 5%, so still relatively small portions of the portfolio. And I think this is where it sits for people that um, are looking to add this to kind of multi-asset or more mainstream portfolios. They're not looking to take big bets on it, but small percentage allocations to something that has large potential for upside or large potential for disruption is starting to seem more... Uh, palatable to what would have been traditionally more mainstream investors. The sort of murmurings of potentially going into a, an inflationary environment, um, and, and how do you think Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies will, will perform in that kind of environment? Um, I think it's going to vary from cryptocurrency to, to cryptocurrency. Um, there obviously, there, there's a wide degree uh, there's a wide variance in terms of how these things are, are actually structured together. Um, you know, when it comes, particularly when it comes to the way in which they do the supply side of things. So some, you know, Ethereum has a has a periodic growth of the supply versus Bitcoin that is fixed at 21 million all time. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about entering an inflationary environment, um, things that have constrained supply do typically fare well. Um, if you find something is, is you know, the, if the value of the dollar is, is devaluing owing to inflation, then if there are only 21 million Bitcoin or there's only so many ounces of gold in existence, these type of assets typically typically perform well. Um, and as I, as I kind of mentioned earlier, one of the kind of most common investment theses we hear 
um, from clients is, is is exactly around this, is around an inflation hedge, is around hedging against fiat currency devaluation. Um, and so there is an expectation that I think, you know, Bitcoin in particular does well in that environment. And, and so your exchange traded product is solely focused on bitcoin is is that correct and and why is that why is that the case you know why have you not gone for for things like litecoin ethereum ripples i mean there's loads of cryptocurrencies out there but but why bitcoin um so bitcoin is an obvious starting point it is uh the oldest it is the most talked about it's the most sort of commonly known uh it's got the most liquidity it's the most ubiquitous uh of the cryptocurrency so Providing kind of an access product for that's an obvious place to start. So the FTA was quite critical of crypto assets, um, you, you know, last month, saying saying that there's sort of lack of regulatory oversight, um, the volatility argument, um, criticizing sort of the marketing of the of the products, so the, the fees, the complexity. I mean, do you think they're a bit harsh? I think that it was a little bit broad um, in in the way that it's it's delivered. So I think like anything out there. Uh, the world has quite an amount of nuance in it. Um, I would be the first one to to kind of stand up and say that, you know, in, in over the last decade of, of, you know, cryptocurrencies, of the associated activity around it, service providers, ICOs, all of this, we've seen booms and busts over the last decade a few times. Um, it, it, by no means is everyone in there acted in the best possible way. Um, but I would say that it's not fundamental to the asset class, but you have to have a look at who you're getting into bed with whenever you're whenever you're dealing with any of this stuff, right? So do you I not think, think everything- it is? Do you not think it is fundamental to the asset class? I, I think everyone right. I talk to at the moment has their junk email inbox filled with people trying to peddle some kind of Bitcoin product. I think I think that's probably fair to say that that um, bad actors are definitely associated with cryptocurrencies. So I think I think that there will be bad actors attracted to something they think there's a lack of understanding about. Um, that doesn't mean that something is inherently not done well. I mean, look, the obvious the obvious counterpoint to all of, to this is that most nefarious activity, most you know, most scams, most uh, you know, illegal activity is done in dollars. It doesn't make the dollar inherently bad, but it doesn't mean that every use case for it is inherently good. Yeah, okay. Uh, but however, the, the the primary use case for, for Bitcoin what was for bad actors, for, for use of money laundering, for for sort of use, use for buying drugs on the, on the dark web. I mean, it, it is very much associated with nefarious activity, whereas in the most part, the dollar isn't. I would challenge that most of the activity done in Bitcoin is is that. Um, I think most of the activity that happens in Bitcoin over over its kind of life has actually been from the enthusiasts, from the early adopters, from the people that have a real passion for the potential that the technology represents. These are the guys that are, you know, building businesses around it, are developing exchanges, are like uh, trying to amass positions and, and hold the products. That's where most of the activity exists from from my perspective. By far, the majority of the activities you've just described are funded in dollars today by like orders of magnitude more. Um, again, I don't think that makes the thing inherently nefarious, but rather it, it's got a growing potential. Now, I think we're, we're kind of comparing apples and oranges here because 
what you have is a very well-established world of fiat currencies where um, where sort of where where the other users are well-known, well-established. Fiat currencies have been around for a couple of hundred years versus Bitcoin is very much in its infancy. Um, I make a lot of comparisons to to the internet, and I will, and we can do it on this case as well. I think you know if you go back to the nineties, the the publication of bad use cases was much higher than what you hear for the for the new stuff, and you definitely can't have publicity around potential. It's a very very hard thing to do. Um, if you go back to the early nineties, you 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 know, and if anybody could have explained to me the impacts that it would have had on commerce, on information sharing, on education, on healthcare. Um, if you could have said today that we would have had, you know, the video conferencing we've got in place to deal with a global pandemic and the impacts that, that the information sharing would have, if you could have, you know, described Google or Amazon in the state that they are. I don't think anybody was able to do that in the early 90s, but the potential was definitely there, although some people may have been using it for some of the exact... Uh, the, the the exact sort of activities that, that you've just described. So I think we're at that early stage. I mean, there is another ESG argument. Obviously, ESG investing has become incredibly popular over the last couple of years. And, and one issue with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in, in the mining aspect is, is the amount of energy that it uses. Um, is there a way that this could be kind of reduced? Um, from an investor's point of view who wants to be ethical, um, how worried should they be? I think it's a broader concern rather than a, than a crypto-specific one. So in that, the energy consumption for a, a kind of modern connected world is, is high. Um, and it is only growing, right? We all carry around battery-powered devices in our, in our pockets these days. The number of electronics we have in our house is, is only going up. And the amount of the global population that's going to enter middle class and have their energy consumption come up to that level is only increasing. So we have uh, inherently a sustainable energy, um, you know, concern for for what happens globally. Now, our, our financial systems consume energy on mass as well, and that's something that's going to need to be looked at and moderated. Um, Bitcoin is inherently... I, I think it, it, it's a little more at the forefront, the amount of energy that, that it uses because it's sort of discreetly calculatable on a, on a per transaction basis um, because of sort of the computing power that the network consumes. When the comparisons are made back to sort of the traditional space, I think it's a little disingenuous the way it, it gets displayed in that, you know, you don't take into account all of the the people and office buildings and associated servers and individual computers and things like that that are, are, are running the big financial institutions, right? I used to work at, at Deutsche Bank. We had 110,000 people globally, all of which were running a computer, um, all of which commuted to work. This was all there to run one financial institution. Obviously, you're, you're holding Bitcoin in an exchange-traded product. What's the advantage of having it in that structure rather than buying directly? Sure. So I think there are two big hurdles institutional investors face when coming into uh, the crypto space directly, right? Um, one is the holding and safekeeping of the assets, and the second is uh, trading and execution, right? So if we think about the holding and safekeeping, um, all of the infrastructure, uh, the controls, the oversight, the reporting, etc., is really built around 
um, the securities ecosystem as it exists today. So the idea of you'd have a custodian that is regulated, there are callback opportunities, you've got common settlement systems, you've got clearing, um, and that the oversight tools, et cetera, all, all work around that basis. Whereas when it comes to uh, crypto, there's a big physical storage element to it. I mean, the idea of protecting a private key uh, to secure a wallet on which you hold Bitcoin is um, is very, very different and is a really big learning curve for a lot of institutional clients. Now, if we're talking about 1%, 2 3% allocations to them, do they dedicate all of the time, effort, resources to understand all of this, to due diligence and put in place service providers, uh, to put the appropriate controls and reporting that sit completely outside the line of their business today? Probably not. So a product that works to... Um, provide that service to the market and allow them to access it in a way that works that are existing setup, very appealing, right? Um, it, it's kind of a similar story when we talk about trading and execution. So a lot of the, uh, well, so all of the, the crypto environment, the trading exchange environment is very fragmented. There's no connectivity, there's no common settlement, there's no clearing in that space. Um, additionally, all of these, uh, exchanges work on a pre-funded basis, meaning that you need to send cash to them, have it settled and, and available before you're able to transact on that venue. Very, very different to what we see at the moment in, in the, say the equity space where everything settles on a T plus two basis. Um, and additionally, all the, pretty much all of the crypto exchanges are unregulated venues. So what we have here is uh, a, a really capital inefficient and a, and a sort of from a regulatory uh, from a regulatory perspective a very uncontrolled space within which these traditional asset managers are looking to execute. Like sending cash to an unregulated environment and then having that available at multiple exchanges in order to access their liquidity is really capital inefficient and really risky from a compliance perspective. Um, and trying to build your workflow around that as a fiduciary manager is again very very difficult. So then, how how do you manage it then? Um, because obviously they're paying you to hold to hold these assets. How how do you manage holding the holding cryptocurrencies? Yeah, absolutely. So look, we went on a really long process of of kind of looking into what uh, into how the the custody solutions uh, work for 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 the market. Like it, it took us better part of eighteen months to do. Um, I was doing five-day workshops in London, in Zurich, in uh, in Boston, in San Fran, talking to people that do this, both traditional players entering the space and, and crypto-native guys uh, on the startup. Um, we've, we've now got in place a sort of robust institutional custody solution um, with a firm called Swissquote, which is a, a FINMA-regulated uh, institution in, in Switzerland, listed on the stock exchange, well-capitalized, um, that store and secure our private keys in sort of institutional grade uh, hardware storage solutions. It was kind of a really long and involved uh, process and learning curve for us. Now, as a manager that's like committed to uh, bringing products like this to, to the market and trying to bridge that gap, we, we see a market gap between, as I said, traditional space and, and the crypto native world that we think there's an opportunity to bridge and, and we're looking to build expertise to do that. Um, for managers out there that are looking to have sort of a fund with big allocations or a big portion of their portfolio, direct access might make sense. And indeed, I've actually made introductions to crypto custodians for firms that, that wanted to get that set up. But for those that want to focus on kind of the asset allocation and don't want to build a parallel 
sort of storage and trading ecosystem next to it. Um, what we offer works as a really good solution for those guys. Good stuff. Well, Jason, thanks so much for talking to me. No, no problem at all. Thank you very much.